Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded on July 27, 2014, at Wellfleet Preservation Hall. Tonight's host is Jim Wolfe, and the theme for the evening is Bitten and Smitten. Hey, it's great to be here, uh, Wellfleetian storytellers. Yeah, I, I told a lot of stories back in the day in Wellfleet. This is kind of cool because I get to hear your stories tonight, and I'm really looking forward to that. But let me just tell you a little story here. Is that, am I supposed to do that? Okay, okay. So, my smitten and bitten. Um, he was standing in the water on Gardner Island, and he was, he was looking across half of the St. John's River at Canada. And I watched as he spread his arms and he said this word. I was smitten by that word <laughs> and have remained smitten uh, with that word all my days. Is that not true? Nieces, yes. Um, so how did we get there to that word? Okay, well imagine it's 1970, um, uh, the world is at war, the Vietnam War is going on, I'm 13 years old, I just finished eighth grade. And uh, my father and mother just found my marijuana plants in my room. I'm, I'm a troubled kid, and I'm getting sent away. Also a privileged kid, I will say that. I'm getting sent away for eight weeks to a tripping camp in Maine. There were a lot of jokes about that. Uh, anyway, um, the purpose of the camp was going to be to straighten me out. We were going to do... Uh, base camp, we were going to learn all the survival skills for the woods, and we were going to go out 12 pubescent and prepubescent boys and three unfortunate grown-ups. And we were going to do three wilderness rivers culminating with the Allagash, the great river that uh, eventually flows pretty straight like an arrow up into Canada. <clears throat> so I think that was a year maybe 9,000 Americans were killed in Vietnam. And there was kind of this thing called a generation gap. Um, and, you know, which side was every single human being on? So anyway, I uh, got on a plane in Philly the first time I ever got on a plane by myself. Uh, flew to Bangor, Maine, got on a seaplane, and went to this place in Grand Lake Stream, this island, the base camp. Um, there was the counselor who was leading my group of, as I said, well, I'll tell you a little bit later, you'll find out how I knew that we were pubescent and prepubescent. Um, so we do this thing at base camp. It takes a week. We have an easy lake trip. I've got a 45-year-old Quaker uh, counselor who's the head counselor of our group. He's going to be leading these kids in the wilderness. There's an 18-year-old. His name was Chris Hodgkins. I'm changing the names, okay? Um, there was an 18-year-old guy who was from New York City. And he'd been there uh, at this camp for like seven years, and now he was a counselor, a leader on the trip. 
Um, and then there was another counselor in training who, unfortunately, uh, he doesn't figure much in this story, so the heck with him. And then there were us 12 kids. Six canoes. First we did a lakes trip. Then we did the Denny's River. Any of you uh, familiar with Maine rivers? My God, I could have made that name up. Oh my goodness, these Cape Codders are addicts to Cape Cod. They don't go anywhere, but I mean, I thought that was only the outer capers who never escaped past the rotary circle. My God. Okay, so then uh, let me try another one on you. The St. Croix River in Maine. All right, okay, okay. And then finally, it was the Allagash, okay? And um, the Allagash is a great river, and for us, it was a real stretch. Um, what can I tell you? We had uh, pretty much gotten to know each other quite well. We, were, we knew how to whittle our wooden spoons. Um, we knew pretty much everything about survival. Uh, we could uh, spend, we could stay in the woods pretty much as long as you wanted uh, to stay in the woods with 12 prepubescent kids, okay? The only thing that was really required of us besides all of the chores of setting up camp each time we would canoe 20 miles in a day down a river or across a lake, we would go into action. The only thing was required was every three days we had to all strip naked at the same time and do what was called a nude soap off. Okay, and that was... We were provided with uh, biodegradable soap, and all 15 of us, including the counselors, would um, soap off. And we'd get into near the water, you'd get wet, and then you'd have to soap off. And this is the part of the story where I can tell you how I knew that we were pubescent and prepubescent, <laughs> because <laughs> some of us... I, how can I say this? I mean, had pubes, and others of us didn't. Okay? But everybody had to do this thing, okay? Now, um, the other thing that was going on here was that um, it was pretty rough out there with all these boys, and given the state that we were at, it was a pretty crusty summer. And what I mean by that is that in the morning, sometimes your sleeping bags would be damp and they all had to be hung out. And they were pretty, they were pretty crusty, what can I say? Because of the fact that the boys were pubescent and prepubescent. I was one of the prepubescent ones. I'm not afraid to admit it now. I can prove, uh, if you want me to, I can prove that I'm not prepubescent anymore. But uh, I'll save that. My wife is out there getting very red right about now. Um, so... So the counselors, so we would do the dinner thing. Everybody had their chores. You'd wash up. You'd put things back in the mulligans. Everything would be ready to break camp early tomorrow. Every night we made bread in reflector ovens. That would be for lunch tomorrow. I mean, we really knew what we were doing. And um, then there would be a little bit of a storytelling thing that would happen. And um, the counselors had this one particular story that they would hit pretty good just about every night. And uh, it was just little details. They started at the beginning of the summer, and, and what the story basically was was that on the Allagash, right pretty much at the culmination of our summer, there was this camp, and, and it was an all-girls camp. And we were going to pull into that camp pretty much as men. That was the story. We would be men by the, the time we had gone down Chase Carry, the eight-mile rapids on the Allagash. 
we would be pulling in there and um, we would be ready for this camp. Now the name of the camp was Camp Wanaboni. <laughs> and you know, you, you laugh, but if you want to know how serious um, those 12 boys actually were at the time was that not a single one of us ever thought that was funny, okay? It w there was too much of a, of a desire, a need for this to be a true story uh, for, for that to... Uh, so, you know, we, get, we go down the Allagash, and it was a tragic comic summer. I mean, a group of the older kids, when they got to Allagash Falls, they went swimming, and we passed through there afterwards, and one of the kids had drowned there. And the whole camp, you know, the word had filtered down and, you know, we observed the moment of silence. But then Camp Wanaboni was calling us. And, um, you know, there were little details around the campfire, such as um, the Rockefellers lost one of their daughters when she was young. And she had just gotten back from this wonderful camping trip in Maine. And she had loved this area. And they had donated this big piece of land for this camp. And, you know, like maybe two, three days later, another one of the counselors would chime in with, you know, the camp only allows the, the daughters of famous movie stars and, and people like that to come. It's a special camp that way, implying that all the girls were very beautiful. And as we meandered down the gentle part of the Allagash, the last section before you get to the St. John's River, we... Um, I mean, we didn't have any mirrors on this trip, okay? Now, I have never seen creativity like I saw from these 12 boys um, figuring out how they could look at themselves before we rounded this final bend to Camp Wanaboni. I mean, the vanity was spectacular. Actually, we were, somebody was able to find a mirror. I myself wasn't that interested in this whole thing. I mean, I was, very, I was actually quite concerned about the whole thing because um, I didn't really know what to say to girls in general, okay? And I didn't have pubic hair. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the whole thing was problematical to me. I really liked the woods. I liked coming around a bend in the river and hearing an American bittern, which was a very rare bird at the time. And I really liked that aspect of the trip. And I was very concerned about coming around a bend in the Allagash, where we hadn't seen any sign of civilization for like 130 miles, and having to deal with civilization, the worst aspect of civilization from my standpoint at the time, which was girls that you would have to talk to and that might actually be beautiful, you know, and that might have no problem talking to guys, but, uh, you know, so finally we get to that point where literally all the canoes are floating on this, this down this curve of the river and all three counselors have gotten us all in order. They've, they've literally inspected all of us and given us combs so that we can comb our hair and slick it down because we've been in the woods for a long time. And we come around this bend, and I mean, guys were sweating, you know? And we come around this bend, and there's nothing there. There is literally no Camp Wanaboni, okay? <laughs> so it, it just doesn't exist. It is one of the greatest storytelling feats of all time. And, you know, not only is the name Wanaboni incredible because, uh, you know, 
it's just such an incredible name, you know, all those Abenaki names uh, up there. But um, how can I say this? Um, I was smitten by the story, not the way my, you know, pubescent friends were smitten by it, which was this intense desire to mix with women. But I was smitten by it because it was scary as hell. And, um, you know, we went through there. Um, everybody got their comeuppance about storytelling and about how powerful it could be. Um, and the crusty summer remained, you know, about crusty sleeping bags and not anything that might have happened if there really had been a Camp Wanaboni. <laughs> so then we get to the St. John's and um, we are, uh, I'm trying to bring this to a conclusion here, but uh, it's kind of mixing two stories. These are true. That's the hard part about this. So we get to Gardner Island, we're on the St. John's, it's right at the town of Allagash, and it's sitting right in the middle of the St. John's River, and we're there, and um, I gotta say that there was this, there was a little bit of tension. There were guys who were very upset. They were pissed off at what the counselors had done. You can imagine. You know, that's like, uh, Santa Claus really exists, you know, and, and he's gonna come and he's gonna give you stuff. And then on Christmas morning, they're like, ha ha, look at that stocking you put up, sucker. You know, you want, a, you want another comb, you know? Anyway, so there was a little bit of tension and it turned into something at the campfire that night, that one night. And what it was about, all of a sudden we were talking about the Vietnam War and the place that uh, the United States was, and people were, some of the kids were really kind of going at this Quaker 45-year-old counselor about, you know, what is this, you know, you say you won't fight in any wars. And um, he says, well, I'll withhold my taxes uh, from the portion of my, my tax that goes to the government. And people were irritated. The 18-year-old guy had just registered for the draft and there was this tension going on between them about, you know, Vietnam. So we went to bed that night, and I got up early the next morning, very early, first light, and I decided to take a walk. Again, I was relieved about the Wanaboni situation. Um, but I took a walk. Campers weren't really supposed to leave the camp, and I was walking around this island, and this is when I came to the shore, and I saw this guy, Dick Bookman, Richard Bookman, this 18-year-old guy, and he was standing in the water, and I just watched from a bank behind him as he, you know, said this word. And then I came down onto the beach, came up behind him and I said, you know, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking at Canada. And I said, no, no, what, what is the word that you just said? And he said, well, it's, a, it's an old Abenaki word. I learned it the first year I came to this camp. And he said, I said, what does it mean? He said, well, I don't really know what it means, but it was told to me that it was a word that you say at the beginning of the day when you have something that you want very badly. And I said, well, what is it that you wanted? And he said, well, I'm looking at Canada and I'm thinking maybe that's where I have to go because of this war. And I said, what, what were you wishing for? And he said, I was wishing, um, I was hoping the word would help me to understand what I need to do now, 
what I need to do moving forward. And, um, you know, camp was over in two days. I just tried to look him up on the internet because I wanted to see what had happened to him. And when I got back home, I kept that word inside of me until I started storytelling um, here in Wellfleet. And the only thing I'm going to say about that word is that one night I used the word in a story about, it's a fairy tale, about a boy who makes all the clams on the clam flats bubble up to the top. And he uses the word uh, to help him to get clams to save his family. Told this story, the next night a father and son came in early and they said that they had gone out fishing somewhere on the Truro shore between Truro and Provincetown and there were a whole bunch of people fishing on the beach and all the rods were in the rod holders and some people were casting. There were like 20, 25 people. The kid was telling me this story, very excited. The father said, he wants to tell you a story, he wants to tell you a story. And he said that he had a fishing rod and he, nobody was catching anything. And he put the fishing rod down and he walked to the edge of the water and he put his toes in the water and he said the word that I said at the beginning of the story. Can you help me with this? Okay, ready? He said, Moo And the kid said that every single fishing rod within thirty seconds bent over. Now, he was very excited, and obviously a school of bluefish or a school of bass happened to, along the situation, right? I don't know. I don't know what happened there. But um, basically, from the time I heard Dick S Richard uh, say that word on that island so long ago, that island fought in my mist, my fog, um, I have been um, smitten. I was not bitten too hard by Wanaboni. And I am still very smitten, and I can't wait to hear all of you tell stories. So thank you very much. Let's get on with this evening. Our first storyteller for the evening is Irene Wolf. I have a lifesaver right here because, you know, scary being in front of all you people. But I do have to say I put my name in only because Jim said, please put your name in. I might need some people. So I did that, and you know, look at all these people, but my name keeps coming up, so I'm supposed to tell the story. Here it is. Smitten and bitten. Well, I have relatives in the audience. I have relatives because of Jim, and I have relatives because of mom and dad. The relatives because of mom and dad know I have been smitten and bitten many times. Most of the people in the town of Wellfleet actually know I've been married many times. How many times have I been married? I don't know, maybe five. I guess it's, um, I'm keeping up with Liz Taylor, that's the family joke, but I'm stopping short of that because um, finally I hired the bar, as they say, and, and um, Jim caught me, so 17 years, here we are. <laughs> um, and why did I marry so many people before? It's because I had children very young and because I, I felt like you couldn't bring a guy home and have sex with him unless you were married. And so 
I guess it was old-fashioned in a way, but I ended up having a lot of divorces, and I ended up um, paying a lot of divorce attorneys a lot of money on the Cape. Some of them have retired. <laughs> but nobody will be retiring because of Jim and I. So let me just tell you about um, probably the, the thing, you know, you know that Jim has bitten me and smitten me, so we're not going to talk about that too much. I'm just going to talk about the thing that most people from Wellfleet who know me, when I went to Montana and lived there for several years with Jim most recently, we had a very big marital flare-up. And it was because I had rented a car when I was a very successful real estate agent because at the time you could take a very large deduction from your real estate uh, rental of your car on your income taxes. It was a total write-off. It was wonderful. Well, now we were in Montana and we were doing something different. I wasn't doing real estate anymore and I wanted to get rid of my rental car. So he was doing the work he had decided to do when we would go to Montana and I went to the car dealership by myself. Well, you know what? I always have loved engines and I think somehow the salesperson knew that. And so I'm looking at other cars that are similar to the my rental, which I was now going to turn in and buy a car. And I said, what about those Tundras over there? Well, a Tundra had just increased in size, sizably. It was 2007. They had gone from the little Tacoma size, which they used to be, to the large size that they are now. And I was just thrilled to death to get into a Tundra and drive it around. It was so much fun. It was just like 427 cc's and it could tow 18,000 pounds and that meant I could tow my four horses and one horse trailer all at the same time. And boy, that would be a real savings. <laughs> How many minutes do I have left? Who's keeping time over here? All right, so anyway, what happened next was I drove it to where Jim was working because I actually bought it. <laughs> I pulled the truck in to the plate glass window through which Jim could see me, and I hopped out. It was really great because it had running boards. It had to have running boards. It was so high up in the sky that it had to have running boards so I could climb out of it. And I went in, I said, look at that truck. He goes, yeah, that's a cool truck. I said, that's our truck. <laughs> and you know, he didn't believe me because I'm such a joker. So it took a couple of days before he suddenly realized it was really our truck. And then it became the thing that he would throw in my face on every goddamn argument. It would be, remember that time you went and bought that Tundra without me? What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> Jesus Christ. And I would say, you know, first of all, I got more money on my trade-in than you can imagine. I only paid 21000 for the Tundra. I really talked down the guy. And so it was a real savings, and it gets 17 miles per gallon. So we shut up. But no, he never would. And it became the big deal. It was a big, 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 big deal. So finally, I sold it and bought two other cars. <laughs> because the thing is, it retained its value. I only paid 21000 for it, and I sold it for the same amount. That's because I bought the other thing that he can't stand it when I buy it, and that's the platinum guarantee. Guarantees the whole truck for 75,000 miles. And so therefore, whoever wants to buy it, they get a fabulous guarantee. And in spite of the fact that a grizzly bear had climbed into the back of our truck and scratched the shit out of it, and I paid $1,800 to get that fixed, I did sell it and got two other cars. So now, if I only have one minute left, here's the punchline. Recently, my husband had to go away on business. He went to the Caribbean. Oh dear, I couldn't go with him. So he's at the Caribbean and I'm feeling rather lonely because I came from a huge family 
And now I'm back on Cape Cod, and I live in a house way away from Wellfleet, away from all the friends that I know. And I'm very lonely, and I say, oh, it's time to get a puppy. <laughs> I know what it means to get a divorce, forget that, and I'm not going to have an affair that's too fucking messy. So I'm going to go get a puppy. So Jim knew I was going to look at a puppy. I went, did you just make that funny noise? Does that mean I've gone five whole minutes? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So anyway, I went to look at the puppies, and there were two of them. I, couldn't, I could not I could not take one away from the other, so I brought home both of them. So I called Jim. He was down in the Caribbean. I said, honey, we have a new puppy. It has two heads and eight legs. <laughs> and then he said to the woman who was sitting next to him at the pool, who I have no fucking idea who that was, he said, what do you think of a woman who calls you up when you're far away, and she says, honey, I just got two puppies. And the woman, who he must have been having an affair with, she said, I think that's a very wise woman. <laughs> the end. Our next storyteller is Stella Wolf. I promise this is not uh, part of the red-headed cluster phenomenon. <laughs> Looks like it, but it's not. So my story about Bitten and Smitten, when I was a senior in high school, there is nothing that I was more smitten by than the thought of not really doing much work that year, my last year in high school. I decided to take lots of theater and art classes. And um, one of the classes that I decided to take was a jewelry making class. And I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to go in every day. I'm going to string some beads on some fishing line. I'm going to maybe make some stuff with paper mache. This is not going to be anything that's going to keep me from just sailing through my senior year here. And let me tell you that that's not what it was at all. It was metalworking, and it was, uh, you know, actually having to be very creative instead of just stringing beads on things. And I was in big trouble. I'm not very artistically inclined in that way. I've always done theater, but uh, working with my hands is not something that I'm very used to or good at. And so the very first day, after in explicit instructions from a very serious, serious teacher, um, he took his class very, very seriously, and he said, you know, everyone be very careful with these jeweler saws. They're very fragile, and we don't want you breaking lots of them. They're very expensive. Well, on my first day of class, I broke five. So he hands me a box of seashells and paper clips, and he says, here, you're done for the day. You're done. So I go through the semester, and I'm really not doing well. And when I don't do well, I make quite an impression. I make quite an impression in general. So good or bad, it's one extreme or another. And this was, this, this was pretty bad. I'm wasting all this metal. You know, it's really actual s silver that we're working with. And every time he sees what I'm doing, he's just like, oh, no, 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 no. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't give you that much silver to work with. You're really not doing such a great job over there. And finally, we're in the home stretch of my final semester of senior year and he's looking at the project that I'm moving along with and he's like no so finally one day after class he pulls me aside and he says you know I have to be honest with you I have never seen anyone as bad at this as you are it's it's actually amazing to me he says 
every day when I have you in class, I come in and I wonder what it's going to be today, and I'm never disappointed. <laughs> but that being said, I don't want to stop you from graduating because of a jewelry making class. You're so terrible at this, I just want you gone. He said, you're about to have to take the final exam. I don't even want you to do that. Just go. Just get out. Don't, he actually said, do not darken my doorstep any longer. Just go. He said, keep this between us. We don't need to talk about it. You're getting out of school. Go. So I return what was left of my mangled final project, and I slink out of the room. But as soon as I'm out of you know, eyesight of him, I'm like, yes, mission accomplished. Now, I didn't think that this interaction with this teacher would have any lasting reverberations, but let me just tell you, when I mentioned that when I do something, I do it big, I leave a big impression. A couple years later, my sister, Zoe, who's sitting right in front of you, Zoe is the opposite of what I did in school. Zoe is, you know, Zoe's organized. Zoe always turned things in on time. Zoe wasn't going through her senior year thinking, how can I get out of here as quickly as possible while having as much fun as possible? Zoe was, you know, a good, good, good student. So she goes into his classroom and he looks at her and he goes, another wolf? He's like, I gotta tell you, your sister, she was horrible. I've never seen anything like it, and I hope I don't again. Don't let me down. You can take this class, but don't let me down. Zoe's like, fine, you're not, you know, you're not going to have any problems with me. And really, he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have. But towards the final, final stretch there, once again, that's where he, this teacher kept having hang-ups with us, Zoe's friend decided that she needed to not turn in her final project because it was pretty bad also. And so she came up with this plan to have Zoe call in and pretend to be her mother. Zoe, this is out of, out of Zoe's repertoire. That would normally be more my style. But Zoe, for whatever reason, you know, you're a senior in high school. Sometimes you, you make choices that are not the greatest ones. Zoe went along with it. And she called up the teacher. She's on the phone with him for about five minutes, you know, she can't come in today. She's really not doing well. She's feeling very sick. He lets her finish. He lets her, you know, tell the entire story. I'm actually sitting in the room with Zoe at this point. And then he goes, Zoe? <laughs> Zoe got off the phone quicker than I've ever seen anyone do anything. And things were a little bit strained between them for the rest of the year, her and this teacher. He wasn't quite as impressed with her, despite her amazing performance. Oh, <laughs> sorry. The next year, Ruby, my youngest sister, walks in, and you can tell there's a theme with the three of us, our hair color. He looks at her, and he goes, another wolf? Out. <laughs> and now on the stage with us is Jen Rumsa. Okay, so my girlfriend always says that... Uh, Nervousness or excitement is like another word for nervousness, so I'm just going to be really excited <laughs> telling this story. Um, I'm actually, uh, it's so great um, to have this. It's just a dream to have this on the Cape. I just wanted to say that. And um, I love the theme tonight, and the story's just been waiting to be told. Um, I, in my early 20s, I was a big traveler. I liked um, to travel to really remote places, and I backpacked in Africa. And I found myself in um, Malawi. I was on an island. I was um, 
in the middle of Lake Malawi. And I was having a, an amazing time. I was in paradise. And um, I was traveling with a couple of people who I had picked up along the way. When you're a single woman traveling, you tend to pick up other single women traveling. So there were three of us, Milena, Shelly, and I. We were, we were um, a group, and we were having a great time. We had trekked all the way around the island. We met people who had never seen white people before, and it was great. And uh, just before I was going to leave the island, there was a man who was dying of malaria. So I thought, I thought this man is, you know, could very well be on his last legs. He was very tall, very thin. He was very pale. He couldn't walk. He was feverish. And I happened to have malaria medication with me. I wasn't taking the prophylactic that you take every week because it kind of made me kooky. But I had this packet that I knew that if I ever got malaria, I could take it, get to a hospital, and I would be fine. So the day before we leave, he's sick, and I think to myself, I'm getting on the ferry the next day. I'm going to be on the mainland. I can get more medication. It's fine. I'm going to give him my malaria medication. So I did. I gave him my medication, and um, he got well. I mean, he noticeably within hours, he was better. So um, that's the really good news. We got on the ferry the next day, and uh, we headed to the mainland, and... Um, the boat, the ferry that we were on stopped, and there was another island. And I knew about this island. It was called Chizumulu. And I knew about it, but I didn't think anybody lived on it. And being the adventurer that I was, I thought, we should try to go there. So Melena and Shelley were really on board with this. We went to the captain. We said, what's it going to take? Can we go to this island? He said, uh, well, yeah, I guess we can extend your ticket. You'll be there for three days. There's a guest house, there's one restaurant, and we'll see you in three days. So we get on the rowboat, we go to the island. Incredibly interesting place. I was an anthropology major, and I was just like, wow, this is like a microcosm of people in the middle of this lake in the middle of Africa. So I was fascinated. We ended up at the, um, this, the one restaurant overlooking the village, and all of a sudden, I get a really bad headache. Really bad. And I thought to my, my first thought, of course, was, I'm getting malaria. And then my second thought was, Shelly had said, I would never give my malaria medication away to anybody. <laughs> so I was like, I am fucked. I, so what did I do? I immediately just went into denial. I was like, okay, it's not malaria. I'm just gonna have a bad headache. It's fine. I'm, I'll just go back to the room. Well, I woke up the next morning and I was in a feverish sweat and I was achy all over and I was there for three days and I thought, um, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I'm just going to have to, you know, sweat this one out. Well, Milena and Shelley went out and cavorted with the uh, villagers and they got invited to a healing ritual that night of all things. So they came back to the room and they said, you have to come, you have to come, maybe you'll get better. Me being 22, me being, believing in everything possible, I said, okay, I'll rally, I'll get to this healing ritual. So they literally like drag me through the forest and we get to this little village and there's a, there's a hut, um, maybe half the size of this room, thatched. And they take us to the back and they put us on a little stage somewhat like this, but it's dirt floor and there's drums all along the side. People start, start filling in 
and the thatched roof kind of goes over the walls. So people are outside and literally looking in and it's a big spectacle and it's a big deal. And I thought, well, if the power of this room can heal me, then this is, a, this is gonna be a great thing. So the drums start and these two women come down the aisle and they're in half African garb and half Red Cross uniform. <laughs> they have like red crosses on white shirts and they're dancing down and they come and they start dancing in front of us and there's dust going up everywhere and the drums are going and, and my headache's getting worse and worse and I'm getting weaker and weaker. And finally I had to ask to be taken outside. So I go outside, they put me on this mat and I'm kind of curled up in the fetal position and, and I open my eyes and I see around me, I see men crouched down just staring at me they're about 15 feet or so from me and they're villagers and they're just staring at me I must have been quite a spectacle laying there and eventually okay I'm, I'm getting there eventually the uh, guest house owner comes out and he and he takes me he says okay come on I'm gonna take you home he, so he's taking me through the forest and I'm literally having to lean on him and he says oh don't worry don't worry we have aspirin here so then I thought, I'm really fucked. <laughs> Takes me back to the guest house, and I literally don't remember the next two days. But what I do remember is getting up on that third morning, the day the ferry was coming, and I, I was conscious, and I had energy. I crawled to the water. I got in the water. I cleaned myself, and I remembered that Shelly had come to me the night before, and she had given me her pills. And so I was well enough to get on the ferry. They took really good care of me on the ferry. They had blankets and a cot. And they had an ambulance there at the dock when I got off. I was in the hospital for a few days. Shelly and Melina stayed in the town while I was in the hospital. And eventually we traveled together again. And we went to the next remote place. So all was well. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> next up. Betsy Meller. Um, so I um, have a very short story compared to all these others. Um, but I thank the storytellers because I'm really enjoying the storytelling process, the listening. Um, so this is a love story, and I uh, think that's the part about being smitten, right? That's the word. Um, for just uh, always holding that person in your heart. Um, and our, uh, our love story is a, a love story between sisters. And our mother would um, often do tongue twisters with us. The, um, the she sells seashells by the seashore. Um, um, uh, Peter, Pepper, pick some peppers. <laughs> so what are, you know, um, prepubescent Peter picked many peppers. I don't know. But, um, oh, let's see. A skunk sat on a stump. The stump thought the skunk stunk, and the skunk stopped the, you know, that one. <laughs> Theophilus Thistle, the successful thistle sifter, while sifting a this sister full of 3,000 thistles thrust something in his thumb. But um, along with cursive, I think we've lost some of that fun learning. 
So my, my sister and I were teenagers, and we were driving to our vacation place in Southern California. And um, growing up in Southern California, we were accustomed to um, um, long, long, long drives and telling stories and hearing stories. And um, often the things you would see um, anywhere in, in Southern California um, wouldn't, wouldn't be there next year. You know, um, this line of eucalyptus trees that you always enjoyed sitting under or looking at or, or drawing or whatever, cut down and, you know, strip mall would be there or, or that wonderful hill with those rocks that had just sort of seemed so solid could suddenly be a road up to a development. And so um, it, maybe we developed a bit of um, 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 whimsy or something about uh, places, uh, appreciating places, but also knowing how temporary places and our appreciation for things could be. So um, there's a place that we would drive through to avoid the freeways. Um, to go to Idlewild, and this um, this area had, as many places around where I grew up, um, no-name roads that were just dirt roads um, out in the country. And um, one year, as we came along there, an orange grove had been planted, and there was a street sign, and um, that was all new to us. And the road name was Barton Road. And my younger sister started saying, oh, there's another thing we used to do. We used to write a story line, and then someone else in the family would write the next sentence, and someone else would write the next sentence. So the story would go all kinds of different places. So uh, we did this um, for fun. My sister said, I was walking down Barton Road, and I said, when I noticed I had an unbuttoned button. And she said, so I bent over to button it. And I said, so a dog bit me in the bud. <laughs> and she said, so then a steamroller flatted me. And we were both so almost roaring with laughter at that point. So I said, there I was, flatted on Barton Road with an unbuttoned button and a pitted butt. <laughs> and we could laugh, and we could laugh. But uh, that's a love story for my sister. We now have with us Jerry Riley. Well, I want to tell you a story about uh, a relationship I got into a few years ago that went bad. Um, uh, I guess it was my fault. It's something I did. Uh, but it starts with my morning habit. And uh, like, you know, probably almost every one of you, uh, you know, I like my day to start the same today as it did yesterday. You like a morning routine. That first hour you wake up, you want everything to be 
you know, a routine. So four, four or five years ago, we moved house to a new house. My daughter was just going to first grade and I started a new morning routine. And, and it worked like this. You know, it's a pretty much standard thing. Wake up, the alarm goes off, get down, put on the coffee, hop in the shower. By the time I come out, my wife and daughter are up, you know, get breakfast into her. And then I would take her off, walk to the school bus stop. It's about a quarter mile away. And, uh, and then I walked a loop the first day, like a mile loop through the neighborhood, stopped, got a cup of coffee at the variety store, and that became my routine. So the second day, you know, I go, I drop her, I walk the same route, and I see a couple of people along the way that I saw the day before, they're on the same schedule, you know, and I'm friendly and non, yeah, good morning, how you doing? And uh, this goes on for a couple of days. So I don't know, the third or fourth day, I'm uh, on the same route, I'm walking down the street, and this guy's coming up in an electric wheelchair, and, uh, and just as he passed me, I said, good morning. And the guy wheels on me and gives me this weird look, locks eyes with me and says, asshole! And uh, I freaked out and he was gone. He just kept going. And I, 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 was, I was bitten and it hurt, it stung. And I didn't know what I had done, but the, like, the vitriol and the venom in this guy's thing was like I had, you know, I had killed his mother or something. And, uh, I, and I was kind of rattled by it. So I went, and I had my cup of coffee, and I go home. The next day I go on the route and, you know, don't see him. And then, like, I don't know, a couple of days later, I'm going down the same route. Here he comes up the, the hill again. And this time, I'm very worried. And I just kind of, you know, go in. And just as he's passing, I give him ever so slight. It's just like a little nod. Asshole! And, uh, <laughs> and he's gone again. So, I, you know, I walk down. I get to the variety store. And I say to the guy in the variety store, do you know a guy, there's a guy in a wheelchair? And he goes, oh, yeah, James. He goes, he's a jerk. And, uh, and, I, was like, and I said, well, what's the deal with him? And he said, I, you know, he was, uh, he was in some, a motorcycle accident, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And uh, he got all screwed up. He can't walk. And he's not quite right in the head. But he was a jerk before the motorcycle accident. Now he's a jerk in the wheelchair. He's a nasty piece of work. And I said, oh, okay. So, you know, life went on. Every morning I'd do this thing, and maybe two mornings a week I would see this guy. And after he told me what was going on, I just got used to it. And so then it would be, good morning, asshole! You know, a couple of days, how's that? How are you feeling there, James? Asshole! You know, what a beautiful day, asshole! And so it went. And, you know, and after a while, I just, it became part of my routine that I looked forward to. And I would get very... I would just sort of get very kind of, you know, what am I going to say to James today? And I would always do it in this real bubbling, isn't life grand this morning, James? Asshole. Um, and then, you know, some days I'd, he wouldn't be there and I would miss him. And I would realize I'm smitten. You know, and I would say, how weird is that? I like, you know, I miss somebody calling me asshole in the morning. You know? <laughs> so this went on for literally probably a year and a half. I'd see him two, three mornings a, a, a week. And one morning I came out, and, um, and there he was at the bottom of the hill, just sort of stopped there on the side of the road. And when I came down, he, his, his, his battery in his chair, was electric chair had died, and he was stuck there. And as I came down the hill, he kind of started gesturing, oh, come on, come on, and he gestured me over, and he basically wanted me to push him up the hill. So, you know, so I did. So I go and I push him up the hill and I leave him and, you know, he doesn't say anything and off I go. And so a couple of days later, I'm walking my route. Good morning, James. Nothing. 
I was, I was crushed. <laughs> like, come on, where, where's my asshole, you know? And ever after, I ruined it. I ruined everything. He never called me asshole again. Uh, and I miss it. That's very And joining us tonight is Dick Morrill. I think I was about six years old. I was playing in my backyard with an airplane in the dirt, a toy airplane. It was made out of metal and had rubber tires. And I loved that toy. It was just something about the feel of it. And all of a sudden, a plane flew over. And I looked up, and it was the same kind of plane. It was a DC-3. And I, I could recognize it because they're looking up at my own little plane, and the vibrations of the roar of those engines going over just went through me, and I loved it. I said, wow, an airplane. I had this little thing, and it was the same as what flew through the air. Jump ahead to after high school, I went to airplane mechanic school. After airplane mechanic school, I got a job with American Airlines. After about a year at American Airlines, working on Boeing 707s. So I went from DC-3s to Boeing 707s. The Boeing 707 was the first commercial jetliner, the Boeing on the DC-8, and it had four jet engines. Unlike the planes today that have two big ones, it had four powerful jet engines. And one day, and I loved my job. I loved going to work. I worked the midnight shift so I could come home in the day and go to the beach. But in the, in the winter, one, one snowy night, about 6.30 in the morning, the foreman called the crew together and said, we need somebody to taxi aircraft 525 down to the terminal. And oh, we're getting ready to go home. It has snowed. There's going to be a lot of traffic. And somebody said, well, why can't they just tow it down, which is what they usually did. And he said, all the towing vehicles are in automotive getting the chains put on because of the snow. I need somebody to tow it, the taxi it. And he looked around and he said, please, there's got to be somebody. Come on, guys. we got to get it down. The president of the airline was going to be flying on that plane. We had to get it down there. Somebody taxi it. I'm in the back. I raise my hand. He says, Marvel, are you checked out on taxiing? I'm, turning, I'm, I'm getting a crew now. And I turned around and I started finding a couple of my friends. I said, come on, we can taxi that airplane. <laughs> this is great, come on, let's do it. They'll never let us do it again. <laughs> so Al foolishly says yes. Jim, my friend Jim, I said, you, you sit in the co-pilot seat. You sit, you run the flight engineer panel and I'll drive it. <laughs> so we go out and we walk across this long, long ramp to 525 and we crawl up in the bottom of the planes there's a, a plate that you can open up and you can go inside and crawl up the ladder and get into the cockpit. And we sit there and another crew is outside, they're going to start us up because you need electrical power and you need air power and okay, here's what we do. And we go through what we know how to do without having been shown. We know. I was not checked out on. <laughs> I had not gone to taxiing school. 
no, I had not gone to how to start an engine school. <laughs> but I'm 20 years old. <laughs> I ought to be able to do that. <laughs> so we get the guys, they start it up, everybody leaves except for the guys with the orange cones. And they're telling me, and I'm going, okay, we're going to go really slow. And I, first of all, I had to call the uh, ground control for clearance to taxi. Ground control covers everybody, all the airplanes, once you get on the ground so that they don't, you know, bump into each other. And, uh, but we couldn't get in touch with them until we got around the hangar. And I called Idlewild Ground Control. This was, this was before JFK, it was called Idlewild. And I said, this is American 525, clearance the taxi to terminal, you know, from the hangar to the terminal. And he says, take, you know, Romeo, Sierra, Tango, hold at the outer perimeter. The outer perimeter is like Route 128. It goes around the outside. So we have to hold there in case there are other planes coming. So I say, okay, we got to be real careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a given. And now the steering wheel is not this. No, that's for when you're in the air. It's down here. It's a little wheel about that big. And I start turning the wheel, and this 141 feet, you know, I mean, this is 70-something feet. And then you got the, so it's big. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm just going to be careful. <laughs> They're grateful that I'm going to be careful. And we taxi out, and we, I said, okay, here's how I'm going to figure out how to go. There's no speedometer. If I look, if there was somebody walking alongside me, would they be able to keep up? And I said, you know, yeah, okay. Five miles an hour, I got this thing under control. It's gonna take us a half an hour at that rate. But I'm being careful. And we go between the hangar and the planes and then the other guys with the cones send us off. And it's just all white and everything is snow. And the next thing I realize is nobody's gonna walk that fast. Nobody could run that fast. I've got to slow down. So I put my feet on the brakes. We have, we have turned onto a wide a taxiway that used to be a runway. And I put my feet on the brakes. And the anti-lock brakes, if you've ever done this with your car and you skid, oh my God, what the hell is that? And the whole airplane, this, this is big. This isn't, a, you know, this isn't a Volvo. <laughs> this whole thing is shaking. And it's going, I'm going, Jesus, the, Anti-lock brakes won't let, me, won't let me slow down, guys. And they're going, Dick, Dick, stop the plane. Dick, stop the plane. And meanwhile, the cleaners are in the back cleaning the plane. And they got buckets of water. And so one of them is banging on, what are you doing in there? Hey, what the, the hell is going on with the plane? Come on. And they're scared because they don't know what's going on. <laughs> and, and I'm taxiing. And, I, and we go by the turnoff I'm supposed to take. I turn the wheel. But four jet engines, the thrust is pushing us forward. And even with the wheel turned, we just kept going forward and shaking. <laughs> so we get to the next turnoff. I missed that too. Now I got the banging, the yelling. Jim is talking about his screaming about his family. Al is just screaming, stop it, Dick, stop it. God, stop it. <laughs> $325 million coming out of my pay. That's, that's what I'm thinking. It's just not going to turn. 
It's not going to slow down until it gets to the new long-term parking lot <laughs> filled with cars, filled with fuel. I got 141 feet of hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel. And there's a fence there, and the fence is not going to stop the four thrusting Pratt & Whitney engines. And finally, the last thing I can do, I, I've run out of ideas. I've turned the wheel this way, this way, this way, this way. Bang, 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 scream, 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 family, family. I, I take my feet off the brakes, and the plane goes forward, and I very, very, very slowly turn the plane, and the wing goes over the fence, <laughs> over the trunks and the hoods of the cars. And that slowing down as we went around the turn helped us. We got to the terminal. We got out of the plane. We went downstairs. We got in the van. We'd never said a word to each other. We just. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Bob Costa. Thank you. This is going to be a little bit of a downer compared to what I just, uh, don't follow Dick, all right? <laughs> so I'm talking, I'm talking to my buddy Abe. This is around 67, 68. He and his father and his brother just bought a, uh, a jeans store. And uh, a couple of months after they opened, they started selling leather vests. I thought they were really chintzy. I didn't like them. Abe said he was selling a shitload of them, uh, and, I'm, and he's getting $20, $25 from them. It was a lot of money back then. And uh, I pick up a vest, and I say, this is just a piece of shit. How can you ask $25 for this? And it doesn't even have a lining. Well, a big argument followed, and, and he said something like, okay, let me see you make a better one. And I said, okay, oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to do it. And it was on. <laughs> I'm walking out of the store, and I go, why the fuck did I say that? I have no idea how to make a vest. So I said, well, I had a shot. I noticed a little smile on his father's face that sort of suggested that he thought I could pull it off. <laughs> so I go home, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And the next day, I go down to the uh, leather center in New York, leather district, and I'm running around all the place. I can't find what I want. I didn't even know what I wanted. And the uh, last place I went into, I see this old guy there, and I said, excuse me, I'm, I'm looking for this kind of leather. Can you help me with this? And either he pitied me, or he said, this is the guy I had the dream about last night that I saw that piece of shit leather I had in the back that I didn't throw away last week. So um, he says, I think I have something in the back. I'll, let me go see if it's still there. So he comes back out with this piece of leather. It's like a gray suede leather. And um, I didn't know if it was the right thing, but I didn't know where else to go, so I took it. I went to the garment district. I got a hot pink satin lining, and I went home, and... Uh, sat down on the floor in my bedroom, and I started tearing pieces of newspaper apart and drawing things on them that looked like vest shapes and cutting them out with scissors and fitting them on my body and then taping them up. And uh, eventually, I got to something that looked like it could work. Um, so um, I went and I started uh, to the uh, garment denter again. I got some thread, and I started sewing the lining into the vest. and. Uh, Anyhow, all this time, my buddy Abe has been saying to me the whole time, so how's the project going? 
And I go, hey, no problem, I'm on it, you know? And uh, so anyhow, I, uh, I, I get to a point where I have it made and I put it in this bag and I go down to the store and I go and I start to lift it out of the bag and as I'm lifting it out, I can see Abe's face and he's going, I can't believe he did it. But as the vest came out completely, I could tell that the look completely changed and he's going, what the hell is that piece of shit he has in his hand? <laughs> and I could see his father looking at me, had a completely different kind of look. Either I reminded him of some kind of childhood trauma that he had, <laughs> or he was taking pity on me and just couldn't wait to get, get me out of the problem I was in. And he says, let me take a look at that. And he looks at it a little bit and he says, uh, Wow, you know, I, I can see a couple of places here where maybe you could use a stitch or two. Let me take it from you. You know, you go take a walk. I, I'm busy now. Give me a couple hours, come back. Now, Abe's father was like a maestro European tailor. Okay, so I'm, I'm leaving. I come back and, uh, about three hours later. You ever have this experience where you were given a project to do and your parent or your teacher had taken it from you and turned it into something magnificent, handed it back to you and said, look what you did? <laughs> it was kind of like that, you know? It was beautiful. I mean, it was just magnificent. And uh, so I'm looking at it and he says, so how much you want for this? And I said, what? I mean, you're going to sell it in your store? He goes, yeah. I said, jeez, it looks so much better than those other vests now. I, I don't know, maybe 35, 40? He goes, yeah, he looks at me like this. He goes, well, you know what? I, why don't you just leave it and we'll see what happens. A couple of days later, I get a phone call and Abe is saying, hey, I got a guy here. He wants to buy the vest, but he only wants to give like $35. No, $30. I said, well, can you ask him for like 35 and see what happens? And yeah, yeah. he said, sold. So I am so completely excited. I said, I can't believe what's happening. I said, is your father there? He said, no, he just went home. I said, well, I'm going to come down tomorrow and thank him for what he did. And I did profusely. Um, that man opened up my wings of creativity. He created an artist out of nothing. So I decided I was going to continue with this thing. And I went, I rented a little space in a store uh, in the Lower East Side. And I got a couple of other guys, a couple of other artists come in. And we started making bags and garments. And one day, this lady comes walking in the store and thought she was in a different leather shop. She made a mistake. And I guided her to the right place and told her where to go, and she leaves. Shortly afterwards, she came back and said, hey, listen, I'm a buyer from Henry Bendel, and I love your stuff. And I want you to go see my boss tomorrow. I want you to take your stuff and take it down there. I think he might buy a few pieces. Well, I did. And he did buy a few pieces. He bought them all. And he ordered even more. And so then, for whatever reason, I mean, other people started calling, and we started selling to lots of different stores in New York. And then we got into Women's Wear Daily. We got into Men's Wear Magazine. We got uh, shooting uh, coming up, photo shoots for Glamour Magazine, Mademoiselle, all of the big fashion magazines at the time. And we were working our buns off. We got a bigger space, and we decided we are going to just devote ourselves to these things, and we took two months off. And we just made and made and made and made. And the night before the shoot, we had everything ready. We had it all set up in beautiful, um, you know, lit things. Everything was hung up. It looked like a, like a museum of leather. It was beautiful. And we went out to eat and sleep. And uh, the phone ringing that next morning, boy, that was like it sounded so sharp and hollow. And uh, I picked it up. And I hear this voice saying, 
hey, I just walked by the shop and the, the door is open and sort of hanging off the hinges and maybe you want to come down here and take a look and see what's going on here. I went, what? What did you just say? We say that again, please? Really? I quickly, I, I hung up the phone, I ran out in the street and I'm putting my clothes on as I'm running the street to the store and I get there and it was the worst disaster. If there was not one piece left, not one, everything was gone. Stolen. All our work, everything that we had hoped and dreamed, all the stuff that we had together, we were like a team. We loved each other. And that was all like taken from us. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I called up and called the shoot off, of course, the photo shoot. And um, I couldn't call them up and tell them, so I walked to where they were. And I went inside and uh, I told them. And uh, to see, you know, men, grown men crying uh, was very sad. And uh, I could see that they needed to have some alone time. They didn't want me and my sad story there, so I left and said, I'd come back and we decide how we would carry on. And I uh, came back sometime later and the mood hadn't changed. And, and I just said, come on, come on, we could do it. This is, I mean, you know, yeah, it was really bad, and we got hurt, but it was just like a flesh wound. You know, we'll, we'll just do it again. They loved our stuff, you know, and, uh, and no, no silence, no answer. And I did it again. Come on, we can do it. I know we can. But no, we couldn't. What we had was killed that day, was murdered, and um, they couldn't carry on. And so, you know, things fade, but they don't go away. And um, I wasn't going to let that happen to me. I wasn't going to let thieves, you know, take my creativity from me. And, uh, and I did carry on. I did, and I went and made much more, many more beautiful things over many, many years. Um, uh, I even made some things while I was here when I first came up here. Um, but that's my story. Thank you. And our last storyteller for the evening is Bridget Moynihan. Uh, I want to tell you a story about my experience in seventh grade. In, in sixth grade, I had a great teacher named Mr. Hallett. And he was way before his time. This was in the early 60s, I hate to say. Um, but Mr. Hallett made the boys play with the girls. When they came to him as a group and said, we don't want to play with the girls anymore, he said, well, Donna is the best pitcher, and Anita Finney is the fastest girl or boy I've ever had in class. And Bridget, well, she could be a shortstop, right? So, no. So we continued to play with the boys and the girls together in this little country school, and at the time, I had a whole thing about being a tomboy. My dad used to call me Slim. So it was a great thing. So we go on the next year to my seventh grade school. I go from this little tiny school to this big school where they're way more mature. And remember those, that word, mature? I was totally flat-chested, but the girls were mature. And uh, there, were, there were lots of ring sharing. And what we would do is we'd go out to the playground and just, you know, let's go, oh, no. I'm supposed to just stand and watch. That's what we did. We watched and we said, who was dating who? You know, whatever that was, it was the ring, but still. So, but there was going to be a high school dance. And my best friend, uh, Donna Huber, junior high school dance, right? 
and I got ready for the high school dance. And that was the one thing that was going to be really exciting about being in this big school. So what did we do when we got together? Well, we put on makeup. We did our hair. Uh, we we uh, did the twist. We practiced. We did line dances. Uh, I was ready. She was ready. We got there. We got to the dance. There's a big ball in the middle of the ceiling, and the lights are all around, and it's somebody's big basement. You know, it's basically one of those rec rooms in the, in the school, but boy, it was exciting, and there were streamers, and, and we were ready. So we rush out into the dance floor, and guess what? Oh, there are no girls out here, just couples. Oh, we have to go. So we went and we stood, and I was going to back up to tell you, but we went and walked back and stood in a line on the wall. Does anybody remember that? So, oh boy, and I, we're new to the school. We're kind of the really green girls. So we stood there, and we stand there, and we stand there. And then all of a sudden, there's this boy, and he's tall, thank God, because I'm tall. I don't want a little seventh grade boy that's not tall. And he's, Donna's going like this. Yeah, he's coming for you, for you. So, it's, so that was my smitten. I mean, I thought, maybe he's a surfer or something, you know, <laughs> just a really cool kid. So he comes over and asks me to dance, and I'm ready. I'm absolutely ready, so out we go. Only, remember, I was a tomboy, and I never had any experience before with boys, and it suddenly changes to a slow dance. So we're doing slow dance. In those days, this is what the slow dance looked like. It was like this. It was the waltz of the zombies. So we dance, and we dance, and I'm trying to keep my body parts, you know, I'm not really used to this. And I look around, and there are kids making out, and I'm like, hi. And we dance, and it's getting really boring, and I start to think about those movies I used to watch with my mother with Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, and so I, I just swung right out. And I look up, and he's not there. And I'm standing there, and he does walk over to me just for one more minute, and he looks down, way down at my, and I'm looking way up, and he says to me, you led. I led? I led? I, I wasn't supposed to lead? Well, it was an interesting message, right? So what did I do? I mean, what did those girls do standing on the line? Were, were they going to be like, go, Bridget? No, they were, she led. She led. So guess what? Here I am. I'm, I've just turned 60, and I'm at the Cape with all these lovely people, and I have to go to work tomorrow, and I'm going to have to put on a suit, and I don't want to. But guess what? I'm going to go to work and I'm going to help women lead, because that's my job. OK, thanks.
Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2014 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Caitlin Langstaff, and Vanessa Vardabedian, and was sponsored by WOMR 92.1 in Provincetown and WBUR 89.1 in Brewster. You can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast on iTunes. Join us again in 2015 for more Story Slams on the Outer Cape and your chance to bite it live.